Ready? All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if we could reopen our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. And the title of this uh, session is The Middle East Meltdown, Part 2. <clears throat> I realize this is kind of the Lazarus session. <laughs> so in between lunch and dinner, it's tough to stay awake. So... I may have to raise the dead here a little bit. Oh, oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> um, we are having some trouble with this uh, thing up here, so hopefully it'll stick on my ear. I wish I had those big ears like Obama does, and I wouldn't have. <laughs> oh, sorry. All right. What a terrible, terrible thing to say. All right. I'm not... <laughs> We, uh, t- we're taking a look at uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 last time. Um, took a look at the who question, uh, who is involved. And then we took a look at, tried my best to answer the when question. In other words, when will um, this uh, take place? October 6th, no. Um, <laughs> So what we're looking at now, can you guys still hear me with this flapping? Okay, I'll just talk a little louder. Um, What we're going to try to look at now and in the rest of the session is the why question, the what question, and the how question. So why? Why are these, this conglomeration of nations going to attack Israel in the last days? And essentially what we have are two reasons One is uh, anti-Semitism, and the second reason is wealth. So let's uh, focus on the first of these two reasons, and notice, if you will, verse uh, 10, Ezekiel 38 and verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind. And you will devise an evil plan. And that's speaking of this coalition of nations that's going to invade. And then if you go down to verse 16, um, it says, And you, that's this coalition, will come against my people Israel. So at some point, thoughts enter the minds of these uh, invaders, and they come against Israel. Now, who is it that puts evil thoughts into the hearts of men? It's the devil, right? First Chronicles 21 and verse 1 uh, it says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number the troops of Israel. So David had a thought, I think I'll number the troops. And First Chronicles 21 and verse 1 tells us that it was the devil that put those thoughts into David's mind. Peter had a thought one day. Uh, He, in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross and dying. 
you know, Jesus, this is not a good career move for a Messiah at this time to go to a cross. So let me take you aside and rebuke you. And you remember what the Lord said to Peter, get behind me, who? Satan. So you see, it's the devil himself. And I think this would factor in nicely with Revelation 12. It's the devil himself who puts thoughts into the minds of people to destroy the nation of Israel. And that's what happens. And that's the motivation, one of the primary motivations for the uh, attack. And that raises an interesting question. Why does the devil want to eradicate the nation of Israel? And the answer to that is God obligated himself to bless the world through Israel. And it goes back to, yes, sir, just keep talking. It uh, goes back to Genesis 12 and verse 3. Genesis 12, verse 3, God says he will bless the world through Abram's descendants. You say, well, why, why did God pick the Jews? And I don't know. You'll have to ask God. But that's a decision he made. And so consequently, every blessing we have today as Gentile Christians, has come to us through the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every writer of Scripture, the only one people debate is Luke, was Jewish. Jesus, our Messiah, was not a Southern Baptist. He was Jewish. And the thing about the nation of Israel, not only have they given us the scripture, not only have they given us the Savior, but the thing to understand about Israel is Israel is the gift that keeps on giving. There's a third blessing that's yet coming to the world through Israel, and that's the kingdom. The kingdom is not going to be headquartered in Washington, D.C. Praise the Lord for that. It's going to be headquartered in Jerusalem. And you see, it's during the kingdom that Satan will be bound And then he'll be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the kingdom age. And one of the things to understand about Satan is he works preemptively in history. He does what he can to blot out Israel so that these blessings can never materialize. And that's a description of Revelation 12, verses 1 through 5. Satan was working in history to prevent the birth of Jesus. And then Revelation 12, verses 6 through 17, describes his work in the tribulation period to blot out Israel so that the kingdom can never come because Satan is very cozy and comfortable running the world. And so that's why these thoughts uh, at an opportune time come into the minds of these invaders and they have a, a thought to attack the nation of Israel. Now, that's the motivation from the angelic level. There is another motivation given from the human level, and it has to do with money or wealth. And uh, notice, if you will, Ezekiel 38 and verse 12. Ezekiel 38 and verse 12, it says, To capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods and who are who live at the center of the world. So the second motivation that's given is not from the angelic level, but it's from the human level. And these nations launch this attack against Israel 
at an opportune time because they see wealth or they see money. So as the saying goes, follow the money, right? And you'll figure out what the motivation is. And the fact of the matter is, before Israel came back into that land in 1948, contrary to what you hear on MSNBC and other places where you're given this impression that Israel came and took land away from a thriving people and a thriving economy, that land over there was nothing but desert and waste. In fact, Mark Twain went there in uh, 1860, uh, let's see, I've got the date down here, um, 1867 he went there, and he wrote about it in 1869 in his book called um, Innocence Abroad. And notice what he described in that land. He did not discover a people there that had been there for time immemorial, as we're told. He says, as he toured that area, it was a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but it is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that is not even uh, imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere, even the olive tree and the Cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. And so what has happened as Israel has gone back into that land in 1948 is a thriving economy has developed. In fact, Israel now has a gross domestic product that outstrips that of her neighbors. And you have to understand that her neighbors are insanely jealous because of this issue of wealth and what Israel has done with that land. In fact, despite, and this comes from the Jerusalem Post, despite a population of only slightly more than 7 million people, Israel is now home to 7,200 millionaires. Of the 500 wealthiest people in the world, six are now Israeli. And all told, Israel had assets in 2007 of more than double or of more than $35 billion. Israel's GDP is almost double that of any other Middle Eastern country. One of the things that's very interesting is some have speculated, now this gets a little bit into speculation, that there's going to be great wealth discoveries in Israel which will precede this attack and provide the uh, spoil, if you will, that will create the covetousness in the surrounding nations. This says the value of minerals of the Dead Sea is estimated at $5 trillion. This estimate appears to be optimistic, but is supported in part by the report of the Crown Agents of the British Colonies entitled Production of Minerals, from the waters of the Dead Sea. The official report estimates that minerals, except oil in 1925, were as follows. Magnesium chloride, 22,000 tons, and it goes through a lot of different uh, numbers there. But it says a total of about uh, $3 trillion exclusive of oil. And suddenly what begins to jump off the pages here is verse 12, where it talks about spoil as the motivation for this um, attack. Some have speculated that Israel is on the precipice of a giant oil discovery. 
And this is what Todd Strandberg writes. He says, in the summer of 2010, huge uh, deposits of natural gas were found alongside Israel's northern coastline. Israel is actually sitting on top of vast amounts of oil. Uh, according to Harold Vinegar, the former chief scientist of the Royal Dutch Shell, the Shefla, Shefla Basin holds the world's second largest shale deposits outside the United States, from which around 250 billion barrels of oil, about the same as Saudi Arabia's proven reserves. And it goes on and it talks here about how uh, it says at the very last sentence, most of all the Jews have proven themselves to be very talented at exploiting resources. If they can't make shale oil work, I doubt any nation can. So this hasn't, to my knowledge, happened yet, but it's, again, an interesting possibility, and it certainly brings to life Ezekiel 38 and verse 12 about spoil. There is a very interesting verse in the Bible. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to do with it. You know, is this a millennial passage, or is it something prior to the millennium? But it's in Deuteronomy 33, verse 24, and it's related to Moses... uh, his farewell address to the various tribes of Israel as he died there on the plains of Moab, having only seen Israel, the land, from a distance. And it says this, he makes a prophecy. It says, of Asher, he said, more blessed than, the, than, than sons is Asher. May he be favored by his brothers and may he dip his foot in oil. And I'm not sure how you exegete that, but to me it's a very, very interesting passage. At the very least, it talks about some sort of wealth coming to Israel in the last days. Again, is this millennial? Is it before the millennium? It it may fit very nicely into Ezekiel's prophecy here, but only time will tell. So why is this uh, invasion happening? Basically two reasons. From the angelic level, anti-Semitism, attempt to wipe out Israel so that the kingdom blessings can never come, just as Satan worked in history to prevent the birth of Christ by trying to destroy Israel through Haman and others in the Old Testament. And then from the human level, this ambition for money or wealth. And then we move from there into the what question, and this deals with the after effects of the battle. What is going to be the end result of this battle. And what is going to happen, and you see some of this in Ezekiel 38, verses 19 through 22, there will be ultimately a divine annihilation of the hostile coalition. And it describes here an earthquake. It describes disease. And it also describes infighting. It says, every man's sword will be against his brother. And that reminds me very much of how God uh, defeated the enemies in the days of Gideon. Do you remember how he did that? He actually had those enemies fight against each other. And Judges 17, verse 22 says, when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And that's the sort of thing that's being described here in Ezekiel 38, verses 19 through 22. There will be torrential rain, hailstones, fire, burning sulfur. 
In other words, these nations that are invading Israel aren't getting away with anything. God brings a direct cataclysmic judgment. And as you kind of move through these chapters, what you discover is the aftermath of the battle. Uh, as you look at Ezekiel 39 and verses 4 and 5, it talks about birds and beasts feasting on the carnage of the dead corpse of the corpses of all of the people that have died. And we made reference to that in the prior session. And then very interestingly, Ezekiel 39 verses 11 and 12 and verses 14 through 16 talk about a seven-month burying of the dead. And as you drop down to Ezekiel 39 verses 9 and 10, it talks about a seven-year burning of weapons. Now, a lot of people will say, well, you, you have to put this battle before the tribulation period even begins, because if you have it happening in the midst of the tribulation, you know, the way I have it, then mathematically, since it takes seven years to burn the weapons, there's going to be weapons burning during the millennial kingdom. So we can't have weapons burning during the millennial kingdom, right? So we've got to put the battle before the tribulation period even starts. But you see, my question is, why can't, why, who says you can't have weapons burning during the millennial kingdom? I mean, who made that rule up? Did you know that Babylon is going to burn throughout the millennial kingdom? Revelation 19, verses 2 and 3 of Babylon that had been destroyed with the final uh, bowl judgment, it says... Hallelujah, her smoke, that's Babylon, rises up forever and ever. So Babylon is going to be burning throughout the millennial kingdom. I mean, what's the problem with having weapons burn for seven years? So to me, that's not much of a, a basis for putting this battle before the tribulation period even begins. But the fact of the matter is, and the reason why Ezekiel includes this in the restoration section of his book, is this battle represents the most severe attack that has ever come upon the nation of Israel throughout her history. And yet God, when Israel has no friends at all, miraculously shows up and intervenes on Israel's behalf in a dramatic way. And that's why is, uh, this battle is included in the restoration section. Which raises an interesting question. Why is God protecting Israel in her darkest hour? And the answer to that is Israel is the only nation in the history of mankind that has a covenant with God. A lot of people today say America has a covenant with God. Well, I'm not sure you can establish that and document it. I know in like the Mayflower Compact, we've made promises to God and to each other. But can we say that America has a covenant with God, that God unilaterally entered into a covenant with America like he did Israel? The only way you can say that with certainty is if you had some kind of extra biblical insight. But we know biblically that the nation of Israel is unique among the nations of the earth. It's special. She has a covenant with God called the Abrahamic Covenant, which is fleshed out all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament. It's a unilateral covenant. It is unconditional. And this is why God shows up to protect Israel. And this is why you can never get rid of Israel. The anti-Semites might try, 
But you see, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, in verses 35 through 37, it says this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Do you want to get rid of the Jewish people? Then stop aiming your rockets and bombs at the nation of Israel, and you should aim them at the sun and the moon and the stars. Because God has said, as long as the fixed order exists, Israel will always be a nation before him. Even when they were out of their land, as I'll show you in a minute, he miraculously preserved them. God is, remember that movement, promise keepers. I only know of one promise keeper, and that's the Lord. And this is why he miraculously shows up at this time in history to protect Israel. So that would be the what question. And um, let's move now into current events. Now, in the first session, we didn't refer to current events at all. We made our case for the identity of these various nations directly from the biblical text and scholarly sources. But now that we have documented that, I think it's fair to take a look at current events today and ask ourselves, is Ezekiel's blueprint coming together? We've talked a lot about how it's irresponsible to look at current events first and read that back into the Bible. I think it's also equally irresponsible to ignore current events and pretend that current events have no nothing to say regarding where we are in terms of the prophetic blueprint. And so what I see happening today is what I would call prophetic stage setting. I'm not a date setter because I don't know how long the stage is going to be set, but the way I think, to my mind, the stage is being set today in a dramatic way. God, just like he moved his hand in the intertestamental time period to prepare the way for Jesus, God is essentially doing the same thing today. He's moving the chess pieces around. And every time I give this presentation, and I've given it multiple times, I always have to go back and brush up the presentation, not because it becomes more obscure, but because it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. So what I would see happening today are three basic strategic trends. The first of which is a trend that's very difficult to deny. It relates to Israel's regathering in unbelief. Obviously, for this coalition of nations to come against unbelieving Israel, leading to their conversion, obviously that cannot happen in any way, shape, or form unless you first have in existence a nation of Israel in unbelief. And think about how many Bible interpreters have looked at this passage and were not able to make any sense of it, and yet what do we have happening in our own day? A super sign the nation of Israel being reborn miraculously in uh, 1948. And as I tried to articulate in the first session, I see two regatherings. The first is a regathering in unbelief and preparation for discipline of the tribulation period. Israel, through that process, will be converted, at least the remnant will. 
and they will re- be regathered a second time in preparation for millennial blessings. I believe we are seeing the first regathering taking place before our very eyes. Here is Israel kicked out of their land by the Romans in A.D. 70. And yet they come back into that exact same land roughly 2,000 years later with their language intact, their culture intact, their religion intact. And isn't it interesting that Rome was the one that kicked them out? Rome is gone. Israel is here. Latin, the language of Rome, is a dead language. Hebrew, the language of the Jews, is an alive language. And people say, well, why doesn't God perform miracles today? My goodness, look at this. This, If this isn't a miracle, I, I don't know what one looks like. And something like this has never happened before. And the sociologists tell us that within a few generations, uh, a nation outside of its land just assimilates into the host culture. You know, the Bible, it mentions the Amalekites, it mentions the Jebusites, along with the out-of-sites and the termites and the (laughs) mosquito bites. And and where are the Amalekites today? Where are the Jebusites? I mean, those are nations and groups mentioned in the Scripture, yet they don't exist. Yeah, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, they moved in down the street, very nice uh, Jebusite, very nice Jebusite couple. You know, we don't use terms like that because those nations are gone. They assimilated into host cultures, and yet Israel, which is mentioned in the Scripture, is miraculously preserved. And see, when you start talking like this, a large section of the body of Christ will essentially say, well, how how can you believe that the hand of God is at work in the nation of Israel? Don't you know there are a bunch of Christ rejecting people over there? How can you see the hand of God in that? Well, as my friend Thomas Ice likes to say, and since he went home for his nap, I'll steal one of his lines. He says, guess what you have to be before you can be a believer? You have to be an unbeliever, don't you? As you look back on your life, would you say that God's hand was at work in your life before you were saved? Was I know he was at work in my life as I look back on it. Hindsight has a tendency to be 20-20. But he was setting up the right conversations and the right relationships whereby I would ultimately hear the gospel and and believe it. If we, we can believe that with our own lives, why can't we see the hand of God amongst his covenanted people in the Middle East? A second trend that we see developing is, uh, number two, a present gathering of a coalition of nations with a hostile intent towards Israel. Now, remember, we meticulously went through all of these nations, Put, Cush, Persia, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagorma. Question, what do all of those have in common with the possible exception of Rosh? All of them are Islamic. Now, Islam, in and of itself, And I don't want to criticize Muslims because I believe that there are many Muslims that God wants to reach with the gospel today. What I'm criticizing is the doctrine of Islam, which enslaves these people. Islam itself furnishes the motivation for the attack. 
because in Islamic thought, Jerusalem is a holy site. It is where Muhammad allegedly ascended back to Allah, even though Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran. I think Jerusalem is mentioned 800 times in the scripture. But nevertheless, to them, it is a holy site. And Muslims, once they have ruled over an area in their way of thinking, that area belongs to Allah. It irrevocably belongs to Allah. And therefore, anybody on that land is a usurper. The mere existence of the Jews and Israel in the Middle East is a sign of disrespect to Allah. And that's why it was so interesting when Ahmadinejad in his World Without Zionism conference said, and it was translated this way, that he wanted to wipe Israel off the map. That was actually an upgrade because he's at least acknowledging Israel's on the map to be wiped off the map, right? I mean, Israel doesn't even appear on many Middle Eastern maps in the eyes of uh, Muslims. And what you have to understand about this, and this is what the media is not telling you, is that as long as Israel itself exists in any way, shape, or form, the Islamic world can never be happy. And you just look at geography to prove this, that those green countries are Islamic, That little tiny dot there is Israel. And yet, what is the world community saying? Well, Israel needs to give up just a little bit more. And if she does that, we will be happy. No, the goal here is to piecemeal the nation of Israel to the point where she's indefensible. And then we'll launch our final attack against her, which is what I think is happening here with Gog and Magog. I like the way Benjamin Netanyahu sums up the whole matter. If the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel. The goal is not coexistence. The goal is eradication. This is not difficult to prove. The PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, was founded in 1964. You say, why is that significant? It's extremely significant. Because what the PLO says today is Israel needs to just give up the territory she gained in 1967. If she just gives those back, we'll be happy. Okay, then why were you founded in 1964? Three years before Israel got those uh, further territories. What were you trying to liberate in 1964? See, And so their whole argument collapses and the whole world community wants this land for peace idea and it's satanically energized. It's it's irrational. And the goal is not coexistence but eradication. Beyond that, as you look at these various nations, many of them were involved in what's called the Arab Spring of 2010. You'll recall that. And essentially what happened in the Arab Spring is one moderate Middle Eastern government was toppled one after another and replaced with a more radical form of government. And this happened all the way throughout the Middle East. It was our former president, George W. Bush, that called this, these nations uh, part of what he called the great access of evil. And one of the things you hear quite a bit about in Islamic thought is something called caliphate. Caliphate refers to worldwide submission 
to Sharia law. Here's a quote from the Quran, uh, and I give you the citation there, but it says, Allah has promised to those who believed, who have believed among you and done righteous deeds that he will surely grant them succession. And I think that's the translation of the word caliphate. Succession upon the earth, just as he granted it to those before them, that he would, that he will surely establish for, for them therein their religion, which he has preferred for them, and that he will surely, subs, uh, surely substitute for them after their fear security. For they worship me, not associating uh, anything but me. But whoever disbelieves after that, then those are the defiant and the disobedient. And there's many, many passages like this where the goal is worldwide submission to um, Sharia law. And I'm just trying to, I, I, you know, I don't know, the, the world scene could change. I'm not saying Islam is it, but from my vantage point, my goodness, it certainly is a major piece in the puzzle. Islam itself furnishes the motivation for this attack. Let's uh, take a look a little bit more carefully at some of the nations we identified in the first session. You remember we identified Persia as Iran. Now, probably when Ezekiel received that prophecy, the whole thing seemed crazy. I mean, after all, Persia was one of the good guys, wasn't it? Wasn't it Persia under Cyrus? Here's a picture of the Cyrus Cylinder that I mentioned earlier. Wasn't it Persia under Cyrus that allowed the Jews to go back into their land in the time of Ezekiel, just after the time of Ezekiel, after the 70-year captivity? Didn't the three returns, as recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah, take place under Persia? But what Ezekiel saw was even Persia itself turning against the nation of Israel. And while Ezekiel's prophecies seem crazy, no, no doubt, to Ezekiel, In our general time period, these prophecies make perfect sense. In fact, even prior to 1979, these prophecy of Persia turning against uh, God's people seemed crazy. Because prior to 1979, prior to the deposing of the Shah, prior to the days of Jimmy Carter, when all of those things happened in 1979, and... and, um, Iran became Islamicized as the Shah was replaced with the Ayatollah. Persia, prior to that point in time, was an ally of the United States of America. In fact, if you look above in the pictures I have at the top, that is Iran prior to 1979. So you can see people that are, you know, dressed in a progressive, modern Manner and how quickly things changed after 1979, where women are required to wear burqas and the whole culture shifted. And folks, this is exactly what they want to do to the United States of America. Uh, this is the mentality. The, it's a worldwide uh, agenda of domination. And then... Uh, Eventually, someone comes onto the scene named Ahmadinejad, the former leader of Iran, who didn't even believe the Holocaust happened. He made the statement that Israel needs to be wiped off the map. He is what we call a Twelver. He's a Shiite Muslim, but he's a Twelver, which means the Twelfth Imam will return to earth during a time of warfare, which he can hasten 
through the destruction of the great Satan, the United States of America, and the little Satan, Israel. Did you catch the order there? The great Satan is USA. Little Satan is Israel. And he was replaced in August of 2013 by Rouhani, who is sort of being billed to the world community as a moderate, which is a joke. I've got some beachfront property to sell you afterwards if you believe that's true. I think Rouhani is even more dangerous than Ahmadinejad because he's clandestine. As long as Ahmadinejad was making these bold statements, it was conspicuous and it was obvious, but when someone flies under the radar, it's more difficult to detect. The nuclear program has not decelerated under Rouhani. It is accelerated. And if you followed very closely what Obama's been doing with this new deal that he's entered into or on the precipice of entering into, the United States of America is helping accelerate Iran moving its way to the nuclear finish line. I was uh, fascinated by an email I received from Yoram Edinger. Those of you that are on his email list, he sends out some fascinating things, and we've had him as a speaker at this conference. And here he's talking about what they are saying in Iranian school textbooks. Now, if you want to know the direction a country is taking, look at what they're teaching to the kids through coerced compulsory education. He says Iranian school textbooks such as Quran and Life, grade 12, page 125, prepare Iranian children for the Ayatollah's sublime goal, the apocalyptic, horrifying, millenarian military battle against the USA and other arrogant oppressors of the world, which are ostensibly led by idolatrous devils. Can anybody say homeschooling? While the Savior, the infallible, immortal, immortal, divinely ordained, and eventual global leader, the Mahdi, has not surfaced, yet Iranian children are taught that the battle is already raging throughout the world, awaiting their sacrifice. School textbooks of Western democracies are the most um, authentic reflection of people's values and worldview. School textbooks of tyrannies are the most authentic reflection of the nature and mission of the regimes. Iranian school textbooks reflect the strategy and tactics of the Ayatollahs much more authentically than speeches, interviews, diplomatic statements, conversations conducted by Rouhani and their foreign minister and so forth. So is it not interesting that Persia is fitting into the exact alignment that Ezekiel predicted along the Kibar River 2,600 years ago. One of the other nations uh, that we mentioned is Kush, that we identified as the modern-day Sudan, and that is the part of the world today where one of the worst genocides is happening, known as the Darfur Genocide. This is the part of the world that harbored Osama bin Laden from 1991-1996. And then another nation we identified was Put, and you'll recall that we said that was Libya. Libya was at one time the home of Muammar Gaddafi, and in the paper I document or remind everybody about how he set off some bombs in discotheques, I think it was Germany if I remember right, and at that time we had a, a, a what I would call a real president, uh, Ronald Reagan, who applied what he called peace through strength. 
In other words, he targeted Gaddafi and almost killed him. And he, in the process, tar- targeted his, his, I think, uh, his daughter, if I remember right, was killed. And guess what? We didn't hear from Gaddafi for a couple of decades. Isn't that amazing how that works? Peace through strength. And Gaddafi is replaced by a, and he's assassinated, but he's replaced by a Muslim Brotherhood type group in Libya. And Libya, Libya then comes really on the radar, uh, radar screen for most Americans because that's where our embassy was attacked most recently, you'll recall, just prior to the last presidential election. And this is where the president of the United States and their various, his various surrogates got in front of the American people and simply lied right through their teeth and blamed the whole thing on some kind of spontaneous uprising due to a B-rated video. And once again, how inc- that, that type of explanation strains credulity, doesn't it? First of all, why did the Libya attack in Benghazi, Benghazi happen on 9-11? Why, wh- how do you explain all the sophisticated warfare and armaments that were involved in that attack on our embassy? But that resulted in the deaths of four Americans, including the uh, American ambassador. And something like this hasn't even happened since uh, at least 1979. But see, that's what one of that's one of the nations Ezekiel saw. It's interesting how Ezekiel saw the character of these various nations when he identified Put, which we probably think is Libya. Now, four of these nations. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagorma, four of them, we talked about how they represent modern-day Turkey. Turkey is a very uh, interesting place. Turkey at one time was a longtime ally and also a member of NATO. But like Iran, Turkey is moving away from a secular government into what we would call an Islamic republic. Here is a quote from Frank Gaffney. Uh, He writes, according to Frank Gaffney, president of the Center for Security Policy, Turkey is transitioning from a secular democracy with a Muslim uh, society into a state governed by a radical Islamic ideology hostile to Western values and freedoms. It's interesting that Turkey was denied not too long ago admission to the European Union. So it stands to reason that Turkey would side not with Europe, but with this coalition of nations from the Middle East that will attack in the last days. You might remember the flotilla incident. A Turkish ship was dispatched seeking to break Israel's blockade of Gaza in May of 2010, dispatched from Turkey. That's something that made the news. And you see Turkey involved in that. And this uh, statement here just broke uh, a week or two ago. This is from Turkey's current prime minister. I don't know if I should try to pronounce his name. I think he pronounced it Davu Toglu, something like that. But this is what he says. I, I mean, I was stunned when I read this statement, it says, By Allah's will, Jerusalem belongs to the Kurds, the Turks, the Arabs, and to all the Muslims as our, for, uh, and to all the Muslims. As our forefathers fought side by side at Gallipoli, 
And just as our fathers went together to liberate Jerusalem with Saladin, we will march together on the same path to liberate Jerusalem. I looked at that and I said, is this guy reading Ezekiel 38 and then making a speech because he's trying to fit the bill or what? But it's just eerie to me how Turkey, just like Iran, has shifted into the exact prophetic alignment that Ezekiel predicted. And, uh, of course, how can we leave out Rosh that we identified as Russia? Ezekiel, when he received this prophecy, or many Bible readers throughout the ages as they read Ezekiel's prophecy, this, again, seemed like another absurd prophecy. I mean, how can such a thing be true? After all, Russia began as an Orthodox Christian country. Here's a statement from Wikipedia. State, the state adopted Christianity from the Byzantine Empire in 988. And how interesting the complexion of Rosh or Russia has changed. We remember very well the expansionistic policies of the former Soviet Empire during the Cold War era. And I provide all the footnotes in the book, but any time Israel has ever had a skirmish with the Arabs, the modern state of Israel has had a skirmish with the Arabs, Russia has always, always sided with the Arabs. And then came something called perestroika and glasnos, where the world started to sing, I've got a feeling everything's going to be all right. Communism is over. I was a political science student at the time, and I remember being laughed at because I said communism is not over. It's just the old two steps backward, three steps forward type of approach. But because the world so badly wants peace, wanted peace, continues to want peace, we buy these lines. And lo and behold, what happens? The bear, Russian bear, woke up and got hungry again and rolled in 2008 right over neighboring Georgia. And, of course, even in our last presentation that we had, we saw uh, Russia's activity in the Ukraine in 2014 uh, um, in the territory of Crimea. And one of the things that uh, Ronald Showers brings up in his book, The Coming Apocalypse, is this, your average Islamic couple has five children. And so Islam is spreading largely through its population explosion. In 1991, in Russia, there were 300 mosques. By the year 2015, there were 25,000 mosques in Russia. So we look at Russia or Rosh as the least Islamically influenced nation, but even Rosh itself is becoming influenced by the radical ideology of Islam. And one of the things that's very fascinating to watch develop is the alliance that's taking place between Rosh or Russia on the one hand and Persia or Iran on the other hand. Iran needed its military rebuilt from the Iran-Iraq war. Russia, on the other hand, needed money because of the collapse of communism. So Russia has weapons, but no cash. What does Iran have? Cash, but no weapons. So the two of them got together 
a marriage made in heaven or hell, depending on your point of view. But it's interesting, this this alliance that's developed between the two. And again, I would say that when Ezekiel had this prophecy, such an alliance seemed bizarre, if not remote. And of course, prior to 1979, you could have never imagined such an alliance developing. Since Persia was, or Iran was an ally. And now the two are in bed together. And the two of them are plotting and strategizing constantly against the state of Israel. And, you know, I'm not trying to do too much with current events here, but I'm just showing you that, my goodness, the prophetic scenario is certainly crystallizing, isn't it? Well, what about the United States of America? I mean, certainly the United States of America would come to Israel's rescue, wouldn't she? I mean, has not America been a long-standing ally of the nation of Israel? Most people don't know this, but whatever you think about Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon saved Israel. Now, in the movie on Richard Nixon, I was so angry because they portrayed Nixon as an anti-Semite because he made a couple of uh, off-color statements about Jews in the Whitewater tapes. But the fact of the matter is, as a young boy, I'm quoting from an article here, as a young boy growing up, Richard Nixon's Christian and Quaker mother told him that one day he would be in a powerful position and a situation would arise where Israel and the Jews needed help. When it did, he was to help them. It was reported that Nixon said he heard the voice of his mother saying those words to him when he responded to the call and plea for help by Golda Meir at 3 p.m. in October of 1973, excuse me, during what is called the Yom Kippur War. And this article goes on and it talks about how the call first went to Henry Kissinger and his response was, well, let the Jews bleed for a while. And Golda Meir got word of it and put a call into Nixon And I don't have time to read the whole piece. I've got it there in your paper for you to take a look at. But Israel was vastly uh, outnumbered and overwhelmed in terms of weapons. And had Nixon not come to the aid of Israel without God's intervention, perhaps there would be no Israel at all today. And this is why Golda Meir continued throughout her life to refer to Richard Nixon as my president And she said, for generations to come, all will be told of the miracle of the immense plains from the United States, bringing in the material that meant life to our people. Now let's flash forward, shall we, to the year 2015. The same scenario arises. The current president of the United States takes the call. First of all, would he even take the call? I would uh, encourage people to read an article that I have cited there in the paper. It's by Ben Shapiro, and it will really clue you in to this administration. It's called A Complete Timeline of Obama's Anti-Israel Hatred. And it starts from the day Obama took office, all of the disrespect, all of the John Kerry calling Israel an apartheid state, uh, all of Obama's statements about we need to put daylight between the United States and Israel, all of the times Obama has left 
the leadership of Israel that's visiting America sitting and waiting while he goes off somewhere else to do a fundraiser. All of the times that a dignitary from Israel comes to speak and Obama doesn't even show up, it catalogs it from beginning to end. And so what is being described here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Israel is all alone in the world. And we certainly see that as even America is not the country that she once was. Even her alliance is weakening. In fact, this is a statement from Obama. The future must not belong to those who slander the prophet Islam, prophet of Islam. And then a third strategic trend, I'm getting ready to wrap up here, but a scenario must be in place whereby an overwhelming coalition of nations comes against Israel and yet is miraculously rebuffed. And I would just submit to you that this has already happened multiple times on a smaller scale. There have been many times when Israel has been outnumbered, yet she miraculously survives when nobody was betting on Israel. This happened in 1948 with her War of Independence, 1967 in the Six-Day War, 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. We could toss into the mix the, the Persian Gulf War. It's like it's almost like God is saying, you've seen multiple dress rehearsals. Get ready for the final act. And you see, if I was talking this way 100 years ago, think how crazy I would sound. But now the scenario that I'm describing is credible. Why is that? Because history has finally caught up with the prophecies that Ezekiel had 2,600 years ago. Very quickly, I'll do these fast. Seven points of application. So what? How does all of this information impact us personally? Let me just mention seven things. Number one, prophecy is proof of biblical inspiration. Prophecy is history in advance. Prophecy shows us that an omniscient God ultimately authored the Bible. In fact, in Isaiah 48, verse 3 and verse 5, God challenges the false idols and he asks which one of you which one of them can predict the future and so when you see the Middle Eastern scenario coming in together exactly as is predicted by the ancient prophet Ezekiel we can see proof that the scripture is in fact authored by God it gives us further confidence of the authority of the scripture These things should not depress us. They should excite us. Number two, prophecy has a calming effect on the believer. Because what it reveals to us as we see the prophetic blueprint approaching is God is in control. God is sovereign. And the world looks at the situation with Iran and the situation in the Middle East and they're gripped with fear. But not so the child of God It's all a reminder that God has everything under control. It's fitting into the blueprint that he described. Number three, we need not fear the rise of Islam. And as we see mosques and Muslims flooding into our country, it's easy to become fearful of these things. But we need not be intimidated because God has in mind the destruction that he will bring to Islam one day particularly as we study Ezekiel 38 and 39. Number four, and this is a big one, prophecy 
is a reminder of God's faithfulness. God is faithful. How do I know that? I know he's faithful because he has kept his word to his covenanted nation all of these centuries and millennia in spite of their rejection and their rebellion against him. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is faithful. And if God is going to be faithful to Israel despite her rebellion, who else is he going to be faithful to? He's going to be faithful to me. He's going to be faithful to you. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. One of the reasons why I believe in the doctrine of eternal security the way I do is because I see that God keeps his promises even in the midst of rebellion. And then number five, fifth point of application is keep your eye on Israel. Ezekiel 38 and verse 12 says something very interesting. It says to capture spoil, to seize plunder. And then a little bit later on in the verse, it talks about Israel who live at the center of the world. And in Ezekiel 5 and verse 5, you'll find the same sort of expression. She is the center of the nations. How does the world today look at Israel as some kind of insignificant country that's in the way of global progress? But that's not how God looks at Israel. God looks at Israel as if she is the center of the earth. In fact, the word there, center, is navel or belly button, which means the center of the body. That's how God looks at Israel even while she is in unbelief, which means that Israel is God's timepiece. In fact, in 1908, roughly 40 years before Israel ever became a nation, There was a man that articulated this named W.E. Blackstone who wrote a very influential book called Jesus is Coming. And in that book, he called Israel God's sundial. He says, Israel is God's sundial. If anyone desires to know our place in God's chronology, our position in the great march of events, look at Israel. And then number six, I think we should support Israel. If God's goal is to protect Israel and Satan's goal is to destroy Israel, whose side do you want to be on? I believe the position we take on Israel is a position that we are taking in the angelic conflict itself. When somebody supports BDS, which refers to boycott, divestment, and sanctions... When someone buys into replacement theology, which argues that God is through with the Jew, then they are taking a position, aren't they, in the angelic conflict. I think we need to show up and we need to start voting. I think we need to start voicing our opinions on these things. If we're not going to do it, who's going to do it? Psalm 122 and verse 6 also tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Do Do you do that? And then finally, number seven, and with this we're finished, we need to remember that we're living on borrowed time. I'm not a date setter, but my goodness, it seems to me like God is just about ready to wrap things up. The signs of Christmas, Christmas lights, Christmas songs, not only tell us that Christmas is approaching, they tell us that Thanksgiving is approaching. 
In fact, Thanksgiving is approaching even faster since Thanksgiving occurs earlier on the calendar than Christmas. And so when we see the signs of the Middle East shaping up the way that they are, it's a sign that the, the events of the tribulation are coming, but something else is coming, isn't it, which is even coming even quicker. And that's the rapture of the church. And we simply do not know how many more opportunities we're going to have to serve the Lord, to evangelize, to witness. We have no guarantee that we'll even be here for our full life expectancy. And so any opportunity God gives you, any opportunity, we need to take that and take it aggressively and look at what's happening in the Middle East as an impetus for that. And so um, what I've tried to do in this presentation is try to help us better understand Ezekiel 38 and 39 by answering the five journalistic questions, and then I finally tried to draw seven points of application, uh, showing us that these things ought to have a dramatic effect on how we live. And at this time, we'll wrap it up. Anybody have any questions? Going back for both sessions, okay? You go first. Yeah. Um, Pastor, I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed your comments today, but um, here's some questions that I have on, on, in my mind. I listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee, and um, I try to read my Bible, you know, whenever I can. And I believe that there are two theaters of war. One, because they say, the, they say that the Great Tribulation is a seven-year period. So I believe that after the first three and a half years that Russia comes down, you know, with, uh, with uh, Turgoma, with Turkey and, you know, Libya and Sudan, I believe that they will come down and, you know, um, that, that, that there will be an invasion of the Israel. And then uh, that's when peace is taken away from the land of Israel by Antichrist. And then I believe that there's a second theater war at the end of the Great Tribulation where all the nations of the world, and then, you know, we, we, we see where China and uh, the kings of the East come together, you know, to invade Israel, and they are put down at the valley of um, Israel during the, uh, during the uh, time of the war of Armageddon. And uh, then, too, you also read in Ezekiel where uh, it says that God put, will put a hook yeah. in the mouth, you know, of, uh, of, of uh, Russia, a rush into Bosk, and so I believe that there are three. They could be a possibly a, a three different things: um, Earl, food, and water. And why is that? Because as I read in the Book of Revelation, they say that one third of the of the vegetation here on Earth will be destroyed. Right. Then well, two. Just for the sake of time, can you just give me your just give me your question? Okay. I, I don't mean to cut you short, but. Um, Thank you. There's a lot of people with their hands up. What's your question? Uh, my question is, um, do you believe that there will be two theaters of war at, at you know, uh, during, during, after the first three and a half years and then during the, during the second, uh, I mean, during, during the end, during the end, just prior to uh, uh, the millennium, you know, that Jesus will come back? Yeah. Well, the, the short answer to that is yes. I, I've mm-hmm. never really heard it as two theaters of war, but... You have the second seal where warfare breaks out, and I'm tying chapter 38 into that event. 
And of course, we have Revelation 16, where there's, as you mentioned, there's a gathering of nations to Armageddon for the final battle. And I'm tying Ezekiel 39, or the aftermath of that, into that. So I've never used the expression two theaters of war, but generally I, I think I would agree with what you're saying. But thank you for your question. Okay, we have a question over here. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, it's certainly uh, very worthwhile. Oops, that's not working. Um, not used to doing this. Um, first question, you said uh, uh, Sudan was uh, the ancient Kush, and there certainly, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. But I think there's evidence also that Ethiopia would possibly be included in Kush. And so the first question is, why would you possibly not include Ethiopia and Sudan in that region of Kush? And the second question, uh, it seems to me uh, Egypt is sort of conspicuous by its absence in the list of nations right. in Ezekiel 38, 1 through 7. Now, it might be listed in the other nations in 38, 6, but why do you think Egypt might not have been specifically listed? Well, regarding Egypt, there's a different set of prophecies, prophecies for her in Daniel 11. And that's a whole different bailiwick on that. But regarding uh, Cush, I mean, we did say Cush was uh, Ethiopia and Put was Libya. But Cush, one of the things we argued is the designation Ethiopia is misleading for it did not refer to the modern state of Ethiopia. Cush bordered Egypt on the south or modern-day Sudan. So I, I did try to say Kush was Ethiopia, but actually that ancient country went down as far as the Sudan. So, you know, I did mention Ethiopia. In, in other words, Kush is Ethiopia and Sudan, not just modern Ethiopia. Right. 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 Okay, there was another question that came in via the website, and that was to explain the difference in 20 words or less. <laughs> Uh, I added that uh, between the, uh, the 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 seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. <laughs> and the great white throne judgment, and the eternal state, and the millennium. You forgot that. Uh, well, in 20 words or less, the, the seal judgments are the opening of the seventh sealed scroll, which I understand is the title deed to the earth. And the seventh seal triggers the trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet will trigger the bowl judgments. So by the time that seventh sealed scroll is opened, we know what's going to happen. We know that the title deed to the earth is being reclaimed. And that's why there's so much Exodus imagery in Revelation. Because people read it and they say, my gosh, the sea turning... To blood, I read about that in the book of Exodus. Well, in the book of Exodus, God is bringing his nation out of Egyptian bondage. What is he doing as that scroll is opened? He's bringing the whole world out of this satanic bondage that it's been in. So every judgment loosens the devil's grip on the world, just like every plague, the ten plagues in Exodus, loosened, broke the resolve of Pharaoh. So that's the best I could do and. 20 words or less. Well, that was good. That was good there. You know, some people think some people think, think that those are three simultaneous judgments, but they're, as you pointed out, three. They're consecutive, yeah. consecutive judgments. 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That seventh one actually contains seven more. Right. The seventh of those contains seven more. Right. Okay. Any other questions? Now, she's a student, so she shouldn't be asking. <laughs> now, yeah, remember, she's one of your students at College of Biblical Studies. Well, just remember your grade hasn't been submitted yet. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I listen to you talk about the failure of the administration. Can you? I, I hear you talking about speaking of the failure of the administration. Congress is fighting. They didn't fight an impersonal agenda that's going on there. And what about the harbinger, that prophecy? Now, I know you're in time uh, prophecy. So uh, when we look at these three factors uh, that occurred, especially the harbinger prophecy after September 9-11 voiced by American leaders, and something that's on the lips of the Jewish people in terms of, of that harbinger. Uh, has this contributed in any way to the rise of China? Because right now you spoke of uh, Russia, mm-hmm. but just recently in the news, China, uh, at least a representative, and I, I look at the Chinese news station, and there's been a lot of rhetoric and uh, announcement that uh, China has said America must be friend, right. must be friend China. Right. Are that and within 10 years they would be in compliance or partnership with Russia, yep. and they would be ready for war. So, what has China to do with this? Uh, right. Okay. Real quick, um, regarding your first point, I totally agree with you about the shared blame. It's not just the administration. You know, we we sent up a whole crew, a group of people to fight the Obama administration, and they get up there and they cooperate with them. So, I agree with you on that. Uh, regarding China, that whole interpretation comes from 200 million, the kings of the East, and that's the Hal Lindsey interpretation. John Walberg took that interpretation. But you see, when you study East in the Bible, it always means Babylon. Matthew 2.2, 2, the, the Magi came from the East or Babylon. Genesis 2.8, I think it is, Eden was in the East, which is the basic... I would take it the basic Babylonian area between the Euphrates and the Tigris. And Genesis 11:2, the Tower of Babel was in the east, which is Shinar between the rivers. So I don't have China necessarily in my interpretation of Bible prophecy. So China is very interesting to watch develop. I just don't see it specifically mentioned. And when people talk about China, to me it's a, more of a newspaper reading of the Bible rather than an exegetical one. The, the big deal in, of the East in the end times is Babylon, but that's a different discussion. What do you think? Well, I, I agree with you. On oh, okay, that. good. <laughs> I got another question for you. This is a humdinger. Okay, are you ready? The key is to listen to the okay. first. The key is to listen to the first question. Okay. Well, in we Doctor Woods, Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine, it is my understanding that his view is that Ezekiel's invasion is tied to the campaign of Armageddon. Is this a correct understanding of Doctor Woods' view? No, no, that's right. And then we have almost two pages <laughs> <laughs> of points that he wanted you to you to address in relation to Arnold's position. I will forward this to you in case okay. you want it answer it, but it's a little long for, for here. Okay. But no, what, what Andy is saying to summarize this is that Ezekiel 38 occurs with the second seal early in the first half. Ezekiel 39 occurs uh, 
about the time of the Battle of Armageddon. So it splits that. That's a unique view. So he's not, he's, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's view is that both of them occur prior to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to make sure I, I'm articulating this right, but the problem I've had with Dr. Fruchtenbaum's view is this view that that seven years of burning, yeah. that because of that, the, trip, the, the, the burning of all of the, 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 uh, the weapons, that because of that, that has to come prior to the tribulation. And what was amusing was you said, well, who made up that rule? And I'm sitting back there. It was either David, David L. Cooper or Arnold who came up with that view, right. <laughs> that rule. So that's, you know, that's, that's always been my concern is I don't see that. The only thing that's in Ezekiel 39 on the cleansing is this seven uh, months to cleanse the land. Mm. But that, that to me can continue even after, um, even after the second coming. So anyway, that was a lengthy question, but the main point was that the initial if question mm-hmm. uh, was simply answered. That wasn't a correct understanding of your view. Right, right. Okay. All right, it is 4.34 now, so we have gone beyond our time. Uh, if you have a, if you have a, um, just hold on, Amy. If you have a display back there, please remember to take it down during.